the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Today, jobless claims quintupled the record last week, and the government does its best Oprah impression with universal giveaways. Can the new stimulus bill bring the economy back from the corona crash? Plus, what's really going on in the heads of Trump-critical conservatives? I'm Georgie Borman. Welcome to the 180Cast. Hello, welcome back to the 180 cast. I'm your host, Georgie Borman. This episode is mostly going to focus on the newest info we have on the policy front. I am going to leave the science and the public health side to another episode because there is so much to cover with the stimulus bill having passed just about 36 hours ago. Uh, but before we get started, please subscribe to the podcast if you haven't already so that you will be updated when the episodes post, which is generally every single Friday. And please share it because if you do not share the podcast, your friends probably will not find the podcast because there are 800,000 podcasts in the podcast universe and it's very hard to find podcasts. Also, quick poll. If you want to see this episode on Twitch and YouTube, like the breakdown sessions at least, and then maybe the interview sessions. If you want to see those on streaming on Twitch and then also posted on YouTube, can you let me know on Twitter at Georgie underscore Borman or by texting 323-999-1802, which is the 180cast flip phone? Because I think it would be a lot of fun. Uh, I've been thinking about it for a while. And, you know, if that's something that you 180 casters are interested in, then that is definitely something that I am willing to do. Okay, without further ado, let's go ahead and get into the top stories. Most of this episode is going to be top stories, and we will, of course, get to interview highlights from last week's interview with Justin Stapley. But there's so much to cover. Let's try and get through all of it. I need all of you to stop what you're doing and listen. I don't know what we're yelling about! It will top the list. So we got news just a couple days ago that U.S. jobless claims soared to nearly 3.3 million amid the COVID-19 outbreak. That's 1.8 million over the week before and five times the previous record that was set in the 80s. That record, or almost five times the previous record, that record uh, was almost 700, almost 700,000. This is big news. And actually, before these big numbers came out, I was telling some some other friends and, and colleagues that I know, I was like, there's no way the government's going to be able to handle this load. And it turns out that that is the single most important fact in determining how the stimulus bill was crafted and where we go from here. Because 100% it's true. The unemployment offices are completely flooded. Wait times 
are well longer than a day. Nobody can get through. Unemployment offices are already underfunded, under-resourced. They have ancient technology. During the presser a couple days ago, I think it was Wednesday's uh, press conference with Trump and Treasury Secretary Mnuchin, um, the one of the reporters asked the question about, hey, we heard that these few GOP senators were holding up the bill because they have concerns about you giving more money to people who are unemployed than they would have otherwise earned in the job that they just presumably got laid off from. And here is what Mnuchin said. Pay careful attention, please. But let me just explain the issue, which is we wanted to have enhanced unemployment insurance. Most of these state systems have technology that's 30 years old or older. So if we had the ability to customize this with much more specifics, we would have. This was the only way we could assure that the states could get money out quickly in a fair way. So we used $600 across the board. And I I don't think it'll create incentives. Most Americans, what they want, they want to keep their jobs. And I said for 50% of these, these businesses, they will have the businesses keep those jobs. That is exactly what ended up happening with the stimulus bill. There were about four GOP senators, however, who were not convinced right before this bill passed, were not uh, convinced that this was a good idea. Now, so Mnuchin, I think, is uh, is playing fast and loose with the, the estimates and the projections and um, fundamental understanding of human nature here. And I think... Senators Graham, Sass, and I think it was, maybe it was Lee and Tim Scott, I think were the other couple senators, uh, were not, not, not convinced apparently in their conversations with Mnuchin about this particular problem. Of course, these guys tried to propose an amendment and that amendment came up for a vote right before they voted on the entire bill. The amendment failed spectacularly in a Republican controlled Senate, which is very interesting, but it, it seems based off of, you know, what they said down on the floor that they were not, not, not convinced on this argument, uh, on the, on the technology front. Under this bill, the $600 payment on top of state benefits actually allows people to have their income almost doubled in certain circumstances. And I want to help people. I want to make sure that you, if you lose your job, that we cover your wages. But under this bill, you get $23.15 an hour based on a 40-hour work week not to work. That was Senator Graham. Here's what Ben Sass had to say. This is a debate about whether or not we're going to let a poorly drafted bill knock this nation still harder in the coming months by unintentionally increasing unemployment. That's what this debate is about. So we want to do something really simple. We want to fix what's broken here by saying that unemployment insurance benefits should be capped at 100% of the pay you had before you were unemployed. This isn't just about people who've already been made unemployed. This is about people who are going to be made unemployed in the coming weeks. All this amendment says that we're voting on in a few minutes is that we should cap the unemployment benefits at 100% of the wages you were just receiving while working. Now, that makes sense to me. I think we're probably going to find out within the next week or so whether or not the argument they were making was actually feasible. 
and to what extent that amendment would have held up the process. Because the the entire argument that Mnuchin is making is the this flat rate that we are giving to everybody who's unemployed is the only way to get people money fast enough. And it guarantees this $600 a week. It's guaranteed on top of the, the enhanced federal unemployment benefits and the state benefits, making it also more generous than the one-time $1,200 payment to each adult plus $500 for each child that people who are still employed are getting. So if you earn up to about $72,000 a year, you will actually be getting more from unemployment than from your job or about equal to it. That is a lot of money. So if you want to make the argument that, okay, well, we just have to do a flat rate, that's okay. But what I'm, what I'm reading here, for instance, from, from, um, from Forbes is that the, the average unemployment benefits by state range, it's about $385 a week for unemployment benefits. And then, if you add that $600 on top of that, that actually brings the average weekly unemployment check to $985, which exceeds the median weekly earnings of 936 in the fourth quarter of last year. That is so much money. I don't know of any state that offers your complete salary on unemployment. Unemployment is just supposed to be a little bit of insurance, a little bit of help to help you get through that hard time. Because as a household, as a responsible individual, especially if you have a family, you need to have savings. You need to have some savings in that account so that when something happens, it doesn't matter that this, this pandemic, you know, that this pandemic is affecting lots of people. You know, as a worker and as a responsible individual and as somebody with common sense, you know that at any point something in the economy could change and you could lose your job. They could move work to overseas. Your job could be phased out because it's no longer technologically necessary. Unemployment is just supposed to be a little bit of insurance to get you through. It is not supposed to be a giveaway. It is not supposed to be an entire 100% plus substitute for your salary. And the this notion that Mnuchin is putting forward that this isn't going to disincentivize work, come on. I understand the argument from a technological perspective that you have to do a flat rate. But the idea that giving people more than their salary as somebody who's out of a job because of COVID-19, that that's not going to disincentivize work, of course it is. But you might be saying, Georgie, Georgie, this is only for people who are laid off. It's unemployment insurance. You can't just quit your job and get this money. You're right. However, especially in this environment, employers are willing to do voluntary layoffs because they are looking to shed jobs so that they can stay viable. Not everybody is going to take the the SBA disaster loans. They are not going to take those loans that require them to hold on to about 90% of their employment. And for a lot of businesses, it just does not, does not make sense to hold on to that many workers when they're effectively shut down. So even though there's all this money, two, $2 trillion worth of money just being thrown at the economy, because it isn't targeted 
it's 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 not going to to land you know it in every bucket it's just going to bounce off the rims so to speak so there will be people who are going to be who are going to go to their employer and be like you know what i could take it you know i'm in that range where i could actually get more money by by being laid off and you know i've got so and so at home and i can help take care of the kids by by staying home, so I'm going to go ahead and be laid off. And people and businesses who aren't going to take those loans could be shedding even more jobs than they would have otherwise because their employees are actually volunteering to leave. And they don't have to be, they don't have to have that on their conscience that they laid these people off and that they're not going to have enough money to get by. They're going to be supposedly well taken care of by this money, this you know, employment, um, unemployment insurance is going to be guaranteed through the end of 2020, nine months of unemployment insurance. We should be well over the lockdowns by that point, well over the lockdowns by that point. And then $600 on top of that, that is, that is an incredible amount of money. Why wouldn't it, why couldn't it have been $300? I mean, is that so hard? When you really sit down and think about it, this looks like such, it, it looks like much more of a, of a free candy giveaway than it does just a relief package. Especially when you consider all of the other pork that's in this bill. And there's a lot of pork that's in this bill for things that are totally unrelated to the disaster that is COVID-19. It's just unbelievable. Just unbelievable. So the $600, of course, is not through nine months. It's through up to four months. But because you're looking at this guaranteed for four months, you are going to have a severely contracted labor force because of people volunteering to be laid off, as I said. And once they are laid off, you are disincentivizing rejoining the labor force. Let's say three weeks from now, four weeks from now, even five weeks from now, Things get, get moving again. Let's say in my home state of Washington state, there's no more lockdowns. Everybody goes back to work except people who are sick and except the, the, the populations that are especially vulnerable, like the immunocompromised and the elderly population. Okay. Let's say everybody goes back to work. Well, you are disincentivizing rejoining the labor force because you've given people piles of cash. How is that not the case? I am very, very tired of people from every corner, from the media, from the administration, from the commentary corner, people on every side giving me misinformation and trying to deceive me. I don't know about you, but that really ticks me off. I'm not, I'm not an idiot. I mean, suffice it to say, I think if you're going to zoom out and look at the big picture, like from an ideological standpoint and from a like a standpoint of reason, you can see that, especially in a crisis, the government is a blunt instrument. It is a dumb gun, okay? It it cannot move quickly and aim well at the same time. So it basically just tries to firebomb the entire threat. They are giving everyone money because to target only those who have lost income takes a very long time. Kellyanne Conway has already said that we're looking at three weeks Three weeks to get people these checks. I'm from the government and I'm here to help. 
Next month, with four and a half times the record jobless claims, you are looking at months before some people would see a dime, will see a dime of their unemployment benefits. I get that, right? So when you're adding one thing on top of another, I get it. But there are a lot of people that are going to get their benefits in a timely manner, and they are going to have four months of this on top of the benefits that they're getting. So, I mean, cumulatively, it still makes sense. And I mean, it's going to be, it's going to be so long before people see their unemployment benefits. Government is, I mean, it, it's basically just tried to, to firebomb the, the entire threat because that's the only thing it knows how to do in a crisis, apparently, in an economic crisis. Just throw money at the problem. And I, for the record, I do not think three weeks is realistic. I think it's going to be more like six weeks before everybody who's unemployed, who is supposedly who supposedly qualifies for this check is actually going to see it. I mean, do you remember the rollout of Obamacare? When was that, 2010? Do you remember when Obamacare was rolled out? What a disaster that was. And I understand that this is just supposed to be like direct deposits from people. But just even considering the fact that a lot of people have changed banks since 2018, which is the information that they're going off of, this is going to be a while. It's going to... I, I hope I'm wrong, right? Because I want people to get help, even if it's way more help than they need. But this is, this is a lesson in the ineptitude and intrinsic wastefulness of government welfare efforts. It cannot help people effectively or without bankrupting the nation and devaluing our money until it's worthless. The Federal Reserve is authorized to provide up to $4 trillion of aid to the economy at this point. We don't have $4 trillion. Where do you think that money is coming from? Who is going to buy our debt? China? Do we really want to be more in debt to China? After what they've done to us, to the world? After how they've lied to us? We want to be in debt to the Chinese Communist Party. Really? Or what's the alternative? Print money? The inflation is going to be insane. Oh, You're stuck between two really bad options here. Really bad options. And it is because government is incredibly wasteful and incredibly sloppy and is giving everybody money when a lot of these people don't need it. We're talking about 20% unemployment, maybe 25% unemployment. Well, you're giving $1,200 to every adult American with a social security number. $1,200. A lot of these people don't need it. Myself and Cody, we don't, we don't need it. I know a lot of other people who have jobs that are stable through this crisis that are, you know, for instance, working from home and they don't need that money. But everybody's getting a giveaway because uh, I, maybe that's supposed to placate people. Maybe they're hoping that that will keep people in their homes for a little bit longer before they get so restless and just ignore the lockdown orders. Maybe. I don't know. But it's incredibly wasteful and it is, it is incredibly unfair because our children and our children's children and our children's children's children are going to be paying this off. If we don't print the money, that is. We're going to take a break from the top stories here and talk about episode 55, which was last week's interview with Justin Stapley of the Liberty Hawk. He's a writer, editor, podcaster, and he is hashtag XGOP. Did a full one 
we actually did a few one big chain left the light bulb that's went where on. it crystallized for God me just opened my eyes to change my I mind changed my mind completely as you might know, if you've been listening to this podcast for a while, I do like to cover people who have left parties or switched parties. I think it's very interesting. I think it's important. And it can tell us a little bit uh, of what people see in the parties and what they don't see and maybe fill in some of those blind spots where if you're a, a partisan person, you know, you just, you're, you're the elephant through and through or you're the donkey through and through you're red you're blue and you're you're very into to party politics you may miss some of these things that other people who have left and moved parties can point out so as long as we're not super thin skinned super sensitive about it i think it can give us some inf interesting information it doesn't mean that you have to believe in it you don't have to buy into anything that he says but I do think that it can give some interesting insight. But one of the most interesting things about Justin's story is he didn't leave the party until well after Trump got into office instead of in 2016, like all of the other never Trumpers who either left the party or pledged to leave the party if Trump won the office of the presidency. And I think that does give him some amount of credibility on this issue of Trump and how Trump has led the party and changed the party because he didn't bandwagon and tribalize when that tribe of ne tribe of never Trumpers sort of coalesced and locked so many people into a certain mentality and they have persisted in that mentality even to this day many of them seemingly uh, impervious to the facts um impervious to new evidence so this is a uh, this is a uh, one of the first things he he says was his reason for leaving the party. Take a listen. What kind of started changing, I felt like I started noticing that um, you couldn't just call balls and strikes and be considered a wholly faithful member uh, of the party in a lot of ways uh, in recent years. It started feeling like the, uh, the central premise of the party started migrating from limited governance from the founding principles, from what has, you know, traditionally been the Republican Party platform, and more towards just revolving around support for Trump, loyalty for Trump. I mean, you even mentioned there's been some considerable change among politicians, people like Marco Rubio, Rand Paul, especially Lindsey Graham, who have, in a lot of ways, done 180s themselves. I think his point about balls and strikes definitely rings true. I mean, try telling people that people within the GOP that are very partisan, try telling them that the president tells half-truths and quarter-truths in his pandemic pressers and see, just see how the average Republican reacts. Really, try pointing out the blatant falsehoods that he tweets about the world's most pressing concern right now and see if they take it seriously. I mean, they... A lot of Republicans say they're fine with criticism of the president. They're totally, it's totally cool, man. It's kosher. Go ahead. Point out the things that you don't like. They say they're fine with criticism, but then you bring it up and it's like. You know it's true. It is very, very hard to be in the Republican Party right now and just call balls and strikes because you are attacked relentlessly by the people who believe that President Trump is some sort of savior. And I, I, I don't think that makes them dumb people. 
I don't think it makes them especially mean people. I mean, everybody's meaner online than they are in real life. So take everything with a grain of salt. But it's absolutely true that you are attacked relentlessly if you just try and maintain some sort of neutral position. And that brings us into uh, our, our next soundbite here about the, the transactional nature of GOP politics and how that is quickly disappearing. Let's, let's hold his feet to the fire and make sure that he does things that he promised to do. Because I feel like if you're going to play the lesser of two evils game, if you're going to make that decision, then you better darn well keep that transactional nature because he's still a lesser evil, quote unquote. That's where I started realizing that, well, that was the argument in 2016. I'm not entirely certain people were making that argument um, in an absolute good faith because all of a sudden they weren't treating Donald Trump as the quote unquote lesser evil. In fact, in a lot of ways, he was quickly becoming a greater good in the minds uh, of a lot of Republicans. That transactional nature that he's talking about was so important to GOP politics, especially for people who are very conservative. The idea is like, I'll vote for you, big government, Romney care, Mitt Romney in 2012, because you will give me X, Y, and Z on the social conservative front, and you'll be definitely more restrained fiscally than anybody from the left is going to be, any of the Democrats. And so, you know, you're just going to sort of protect us from from the other guys. Um, but you you can still call those balls and strikes. You say, yeah, he's he's our guy in terms of the the party politics. Yes, he's he's GOP, and in many ways he is a, a leader of the party, the leader of the party. But you can still sort of take more of a neutral tone and say you did this wrong, you did that wrong, and not be run out of town on a rail. Because you're not being, quote unquote, supportive of our president. I, I continuously saw this transactional nature that's traditionally been such a big aspect of the relationship between the conservative base and conservative leadership. That started to go away and it quickly was becoming, you know, whatever Trump's position was in a given day, whatever he said on a given day, we need to adjust ourselves because we need to support him because he's our president. It's according to Justin, it's not even about being able to call the balls and strikes. It's if you are not actively being sort of boostery of the president, then it's almost like you don't belong in the Republican Party. You're a quote unquote conservative because you're not totally in line with where Donald Trump wants to take the country and where he wants to take the party. And that's a problem. And I hope that when Trump does leave office, and hopefully we get uh, another president from the grand old party, that that doesn't continue to be the case. It's so important to be able to have dissent and to be able to have debate within a party. Because if you don't have that, if one side, even if it's smaller is consistently suppressed, man, you might leave those guys, they might be totally alienated, and you need their votes, and you you cause a lot of divisiveness and strife within the party, and that makes it harder to come together on those coalitional 
issues, for instance, for the people who are much more libertarian minded and, you know, you've got people in the people who are very socially conservative, you need to be able to come together on coalitional issues. If you have this divisiveness that is so exacerbated by this one person, by this one personality like Donald Trump, that's a huge problem for the party long term. It's it's not enough just to have a charismatic leader who can gin up the base and and draw big rallies. You have to be able to incorporate those people that may not be completely in line with where you want to take the country, but can see that transactional nature and where they are getting wins out of this situation and are much more likely to cooperate and help get to that point. The the tribalism that we're seeing right now on all sides politically is tearing the country apart. And in the middle of a national crisis, what we need is unity and to wash off some of that war paint and call truth from fiction and clarity out of confusion and be able to call those balls and strikes and to be able to point out, especially, 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 I cannot emphasize this enough. When something is factually inaccurate or when it logically does not make sense and it is not in line with what the common reasonable person understands to be human nature, like the example I gave with Secretary Mnuchin, you have to be able to call that out. And people have to be able to recognize like, yeah, you know what? You're right. That's not okay. We need to put some pressure on this person over here or this section over here to get in line and ditch the falsehoods and the um, the lack of logic and come on board with truth because we are not going to get anywhere good without that. Okay. Let's go ahead and move back into what is happening with the pandemic on the economic front. Do you think it is inevitable that we will be in recession? You know, we, we may be we may well be in a recession. But I, again, I would point to the difference between the, this and a normal recession. This isn't there's nothing fundamentally wrong with our economy. Quite the contrary. The economy performed very well right through February We've got 50-year low in unemployment for the last couple of years. So we start in a very strong position. This isn't a, a, something that's wrong with the economy. That was Federal Reserve Chairman Jerome Powell. We may well be in a recession. No, really? 3.3 million people claiming that they lost their jobs last week. You think, oh, maybe we might be in a recession. That, I don't know, maybe. I don't know, maybe. The Dow Jones peaked Last month at 29,551, it is now down at 21,200, up a bit from the low of just below 1,900, or sorry, 19,000. Um, so we're, we're down like between, you know, 25 and 30 percent. A recession is defined, if you forgot this from econ, by about as a rule of thumb, two quarters of negative growth and a significant drop in employment and income. A depression, which I hope we are not entering into, but uh, as I'm going to discuss later on, is a possibility. A depression is defined by more or less a prolonged period of that contraction of the economy. So we don't just sort of dip and level off for a little bit and then come back up. It's sort of dip and then level off 
for a very, very long time. So we don't know yet that we're entering that, but it is almost certain that we are entering a recession. I mean, we were due for a recession anyway. So Powell says that there's nothing fundamentally wrong with the economy, that the, the fundamentals are sound. Well, yeah, they're sound now at this very second, but what about, I mean, and, and, and you're saying, okay, well, we're infusing all of this cash into the economy, all this liquidity, that's going to solve the, the, the liquidity crisis, right? Because businesses are strapped for cash because they're shut down. They don't have any revenue. If we just give them some money, then we can sort of hold people in stasis until all this thing, this, this whole thing is solved. So that brings us to our next segment because the conventional wisdom among financial regulars regulators in DC seems to be that if you just pump enough money into the economy, it will basically act like an air compressor that keeps something in the air, even though gravity wants to bring it back down. This case is not clear to me. I'll do your research. So Christopher Bedford, who is a senior editor over at The Federalist, wrote a, a couple days ago, on how regulators seem to be missing that the liquidity crisis could quickly turn into an insolvency insolvency crisis and threaten supply chains. So here's, I just want to read to you the, this explanatory part of his article that I think we really need to grasp if we are going to understand whether or not this policy of just pumping money into the economy is really going to solve things. He says, Consider the aluminum company that sells the raw material to the parts company. In a normal business atmosphere, they deliver aluminum and receive payment for delivery about 30 days later. The owner of the aluminum company now has a very important consideration. Will he continue sending aluminum to the parts company without getting the money up front? Likely not, given his customers' difficulties. But the two have done business a long time, so instead of cutting the parts company off, he might simply request payment in advance. The problem is that every other supplier the parts company does business with is making the same calculation and demanding payment up front as well. The parts company is losing money as it is, so is in no position to pay up front for all its inputs. Without the supplies the company needs to make its parts, it makes none, meaning it has no sales, meaning it quickly burns through its little remaining cash and is left insolvent. It doesn't stop at the parts company. Consider a chemical company that sells chemical purifiers to the aluminum company. Its owner knows its clients' main customers are the parts company, main customers are the parts companies that are struggling and closing all over the country. Will its owner send chemical products to the aluminum company? Remember, the parts company normally operates a machine shop that makes five or six critical replacement parts for the most widely used line of American tractors. Those tractors are critical to our farmers. Those farmers produce our food, and that food is sold on our shelves. The gutting of our manufacturing and middle class brought right to the town grocery store. He writes, this is the insolvency crisis. It starts with the break of trust and rise in skepticism toward the profitability of each business as long as the coronavirus crisis continues. This skepticism makes financial conditions for every one of these companies worse and accelerates businesses' decline into insolvency. The Federal Reserve has staved off a financial crisis, making massive loans to its banking partners to keep everyday transactions humming. But what of the insolvency crisis? 
While the generous business loans and grants in the very important Senate package will keep businesses on life support, will it hold the stitches of our economic fabric together? And then he continues, money for payroll, utility bills, and rent, which is what these loans are for. They are not for your income. They are not for your profit to reinvest into your company. They are not for paying vendors. That money won't establish trust, he writes, that the parts company can pay for its aluminum in 30 days and the need for more and more bailout spending at the incredibly high risk of inflation continues as more and more small and mid-sized companies join them in insolvency. The government could simply bail out the companies as they fail, as Washington is primed to do for massive corporations like the airlines, but the insidious danger the coming insolvency crisis poses to our economic ecosystem demands thinking ahead before we end up with a chain reaction that reaches right into the heartland and our ability to stock supermarket shelves. It's a really good piece. I have it linked in the episode description. There are a lot of people out there who don't have a a solid understanding of the economy. I don't care if you went, I don't care if you have a degree, I don't care if you took Econ 101 or anything. There are a lot of people out there who seem to think that this pause, this lockdown, is just like a giant game of red light, green light. And you can say, red light, and the entire economy freezes. And we're just going to hold we're just going to hold in that position until the the curve is flattened and then we can all come out and there's like green light and everything starts up again. I mean, even people who do under, understand economics are like seemingly promoting this idea that you can just hold something and pause. Like you can just pause the economy. That's maybe for a few days, but a few months. There are lasting consequences to these shutdowns. There are lasting consequences to everybody staying home, even if they aren't under orders from their governor. There are dominoes that are wobbling right now as we speak. There are small businesses all over the country that have already shuttered their doors for good. The dominoes are wobbling right now, and we better pray that they don't fall over. The 180 cast will be back again next Friday with an interview episode I'm happy to share with you the opposite 180 to the assisted suicide flip that we covered a few weeks ago with Chris Ford, who's a disability rights advocate in New Zealand. If you haven't listened to that yet, I'll link it in the episode description so you can be primed to listen to the opposite 180. I love being able to do these pairings so that you can really get a a 360 view of how people change their minds on an issue. Um, I spoke with Vince Cable, who is a former long longtime member of British Parliament, about how he came around to supporting assisted suicide. So I think it is a very valuable addition to the conversation, and I hope you tune in. Without carrying on too long, please be safe, do stay home, do wash your hands, take care of the people you love, and if you get a check and you don't need that money, consider doing something good with it. Maybe donate it to your church or donate it to uh, a charity that's doing important work right now. Donate it to people that may be getting overlooked and left behind while everybody deals with the COVID-19 crisis. Do something good with that money. Don't just pocket it. Don't just blow it on buying beer at the grocery store. The grocery stores are doing fine right now. Trust me, okay? Walmart's doing fine. Just try and spend it somewhere else. Spend it on somebody who needs it. 
Until next time, seek the truth, share your values, and listen with your heart and your mind. God bless. In the middle of struggle, Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got. In the middle of the struggle, Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got. In the middle Executive producer Kevin McCullough. Music by Reefy Crack. In the middle of the struggle, Lord, let me see who I am, what I need, who I've got.